I spoke with a man who had recently lost his wife and he was sitting alone in his house and explained to me that he, he knew things were changing and that eventually his home would be underwater, but that he wasn't going to leave because his wife was buried on his land. And even though three out of four of the thatched buildings that made up his house had been washed away, he was not going to leave his island. He was going to be buried with his wife and she was buried on their land. And he would kind of go down with his home when the sea came. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of Climate Exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Maria Virginia Olano and Amanda Griffiths. One of the big tragedies of climate change is that the people and states responsible for emitting the most heat-trapping gases are not the ones actually bearing the brunt of the consequences. While nations such as Pacific Islands, which have barely contributed to CO2 emissions at all, are facing existential threats due to their land and the ways of life. During the 2012 UN climate talks in Copenhagen, former president of Kiribati, Note Tong, addressed the General Assembly with his concern over the future of his country. It brought international attention to the challenges of small island states and the unequal distribution of climate impacts in some of the most vulnerable places in the world. Right, and it is interesting here to think about the ways in which we discuss and tackle climate change at the international level. Because even if the UN is a global body where each state counts for one vote and they're supposed to have equal representation, it most often does not turn out that way. And the reality is that most of the weight of decision making as well as the limelight tends to fall upon world powers as they have their resources and political clout. So according to a 2013 World Bank report, Pacific Island nations are among the world's most physically and economically vulnerable to climate change and extreme weather events like floods, earthquakes, and tropical cyclones. Kiribati is a collection of 33 islands, and it's home to just over 1,000 people, and it's scattered across a swath of the Pacific Ocean about twice the size of Alaska. All of those islands are no higher than six feet above sea level. And for that reason, they are among the most vulnerable nations to climate impacts. So some of the most pressing concerns for the people of Kiribati are the scarcity of secure food and drinking water sources and the significant property damage caused by high tides and tropical storms. It is actually expected that the islands will become increasingly uninhabitable over the next 50 years. Most families in the outer islands of Kiribati practice a primarily subsistence-based fishing and harvesting lifestyle, and their diet consists of the daily catch of fish supplemented with local produce. As sea level rises, coconut and breadfruit trees on the island are dying, and gardens have been inundated, which makes it increasingly difficult for families to maintain their subsistence lifestyle without supplementing their diet with expensive imported foods. Right, and it goes beyond food as well. Drinking water is also a very serious concern for island nations and for Kiribati in particular, as salt water from the ocean gets infiltrated into drinking wells, making people increasingly dependent on rainwater for consumption. 
So to talk this week and to tell us a little bit more about the plights of Pacific Islanders and these nation states, we decided to talk to Janice Cantieri. She's an environmental journalist and a Fulbright National Geographic storyteller who has focused most of her work on stories of climate impacts with a focus on local adaptation to climate change in the Pacific. A lot of her work has been in the islands of Kiribati, where she lived for over a year getting to know the people and the ways in which climate change is impacting their lives. You can find and read her stories uh, and learn more about her work at JaniceCantieri.com. Hello? Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. We're very excited. So we can just jump right into questions. Cool. Most of your work focuses on adaptation, right? And how to tell stories of adaptation rather than just focusing on the problems. And do you Mm -hmm. think you could dive into an example or what is the most fascinating example you have come across of adaptation to climate change at the local level? So... The reason that I, I focus a lot on adaptation is because I have spent a lot of time not only reporting on climate internationally, but, but living with families when I'm doing those reporting trips for months at a time. And the common issue that I hear from people that I'm spending time with is that the media often reports on the problem of climate change and right. not really what people are doing to deal with it. So I wanted to focus on that. And some of the innovations that people have come up with have been really resourceful and um, just so impressive. In Kiribati, one of the main problems they have is they're having a lot of health problems now because they've become more dependent on imported foods. And that's a result of the, the rising sea level wiping out their staple food crops. And what one person has done, she's a young Kiribati student, he developed a way to grow vegetables in hydroponic boxes and raise them up above where the tides come in. So he put these plastic Rubbermaid boxes on tables that are above where the water comes in. So it avoids the problem of the salt water coming in and killing all the crops. And then people have an alternative source of fresh fruits and vegetables that's really affordable. They don't have to buy expensive imported food from Australia and they don't have to buy anything special to make this. He's teaching them how to grow using hydroponics and there are people that have started doing that using plastic soda bottles they find on the beach. And it's a really affordable way to solve a pretty big problem in Kiribati. Looking at the photos that you've taken there and it's incredible to give the snapshot of what life is like there. What led you to photojournalism and capturing stories through through your photographs? So I really didn't have a strong background in photography before I went off to do reporting. And I went on my own initially, and I've usually traveled alone when I've done reporting. I started taking photos while I was in Kiribati because I didn't have a photographer with me, and I didn't really know what I was doing, but figured that if people can really see what's happening, if they can see the changes that are just 
eye-opening and right in front of your face all the time is here, but it would it would make a difference in how people understood climate change regardless of whether or not my photography skills are are up to par but yeah that's how it that's how I started and in my some of my later work the recent story for National Geographic National Geographic sent a photographer Sarah Hilton to work on the story with me and I think that brought a lot of that story to life in a way that I'm not I'm not at her level at all but her photographs really told the story in a a different and powerful way. What do you hope to convey through your storytelling and through all of the stories that you bring back from the communities that you visit and from Kiribati? One of the main motivations for me is sharing stories that make people feel like it's possible to make changes in their own life that are sustainable and at least leading towards a more sustainable future. And what inspires me to continue writing these types of stories is that typically the communities that I'm working with are facing some of the first really drastic changes that are happening as a result of climate change. Mm -hmm. And even so, with very few resources, they've been able to come up with really innovative and inspiring and sustainable solutions and they've set examples for the rest of the world and especially for people in the U.S. where we are contributing to most of the carbon emissions and we have a lot of resources and if these people can make these changes then it should be very easy for us to integrate some of those ideas into our lives and follow that example. That's so fascinating that you use that as an example to inspire action but a different kind of action that you could have assumed, right? Because it would be very easy to say, I come with these stories to inspire policy action to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. But this is, in a way, so much more powerful in telling people, listen, it starts at the local level and from the bottom up that we can really affect change. And that's already happening all over the world. And that's really, I think, where a lot of the change has to start. In order for it to become adopted as policy, it has to be first adopted at the, the local level in, in your personal life, you know, you need to be at least thinking about or have it in the back of your head, some of these ideas, and then more people start discussing it and talking about it. And the more people know about something, the more they care about it, and the more they're likely to advocate for it at a, at a policy or, or international level. So Maria, do you remember that time that we <laughs> drove in a Tesla? It was amazing. <laughs> Honestly, it's one of those things where we've heard how amazing Teslas are, but you never really understand it fully until you are in it and like actually riding it's, inside. Yeah, it's like you're driving in a spaceship. Literally. <laughs> like these really crystal clear screens and you just touch them and decide like, what you want to listen to and then you look up and there's no ceiling. Everything is so sleek. It's, yeah. It's, no lines. It's amazing. No edges. No edges. No, edges. no buttons. There's actually only one button. Everything else is controlled by a massive screen. Which, by the way, did you know they came up with before the iPad was even a thing? No way. Yeah. Huh. Trendsetters. Tesla's amazing. On that note, <laughs> we are actually in the middle of our biggest fundraiser yet. And we're giving away three brand new Teslas. Right. We decide for our third annual raffle, three Teslas is very fitting true and the winner gets their choice of a model x a model s or a model 3 performance for first place but second and third place also 
get a car. It's pretty sweet. So where do we find out more about a raffle or purchase a ticket again? Yeah, so if you want to support us on our mission, uh, visit carbonraffle.org where you can get your tickets. It's a pretty sweet website if I do say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> There's just something about learning about people on the other side of the world and to hear stories about what they're doing and almost find that common thread of humanity in it and understand the greater issues of climate change and what we should be doing and finding a solution and really tying those together. Yeah, that's my main hope with this too. I, that, I, that means a lot that you, that you said that just because... <laughs> I don't know, sometimes I publish a story and I'm like, I hope someone reads this. I don't really know what <laughs> what will come out of it. And that's that's exactly what I've been trying to achieve because I think a lot of times people really connect to something if it's directly affecting them. Right. And it's really easy to write off a group of people that are on the other side of the world on a tiny island that you've never heard of or a small farming community in India or a few women in Canada who are starting their own solar project to act in resistance to a new pipeline that, that's being built. I think there is really a common thread between a lot of the stories that, that I've come up with, and it's my goal that people can see across borders and across differences in culture to see that it doesn't really matter where people are coming from. It's all the same planet, and people are facing a lot of the same challenges and dealing with them, and it's something that we all have to work together to address. One of the photos in your blog, it was showing teenagers in, in an abandoned house that were dancing, and it was depicting this like, hangout spot that was created that teenagers gathered in, and it's striking things of either kids playing somewhere or, or just things where that's common to any town in any part of the world. It's showing those really common aspects of life, but in a completely different setting. And I think that's incredibly powerful. I think a lot of photos came from, I've just lived in most of these communities for pretty extended periods of time. I was in Kyrgyz for about a year total. And I was really just amazed with the hospitality there. I was adopted into a lot of different families. And that, that gave me a, a really different perspective. I really appreciate the fact that people trusted me and, and let me into their homes. And it's been different than parachuting in as a journalist who's mm -hmm. just showing up for a week or two and doesn't really have time to, to get to know people. Have you found any challenges in trying to tell these stories or when you come back and you get published in National Geographic or in the other outlets you have? And have you faced any kind of, not backlash, but people who are here and don't necessarily have ever felt any kind of climate change impacts. So it's very easy to deny or or turn a blind eye as to what's going on. And if so, how do you deal with that part of the narrative around climate change? I've actually been very surprised with the people who may be reluctant to believe the science and climate. I grew up in a pretty small suburb of Milwaukee, and I came back to give a talk about my work in Kyrgyz and the rising sea levels and climate change, and I was not expecting anyone to show up because it's a pretty conservative town, and people don't really discuss 
climate change that much and i just was shocked there were dozens of people there everyone had really great questions there were no people there that came to question any anything that i said or any of the science behind any of what i said and i think the reason they didn't question it is because i led with stories about people and this is what's happening to these people and instead of debating the science behind what was happening i was showing the evidence of people really dealing with already problems that already exist i have had one or two people question what i was doing and they typically weren't questioning climate science they were questioning why i wasted the time because they were like well the country's going to be underwater anyways why do you care and i just kind of responded by saying well if you lived on a coastal city in florida or anywhere in the u.s where it's right on the coast i don't think you would want people to just completely dismiss the challenges that your community is facing and that usually works what i found that works the best with people who are reluctant to accept very established climate science is telling stories of people and places and things that i've seen around the world that are evidence of climate change and they're evidence that things are different than they were 30 years ago and things that have an entire country that's had the same way of life and lived in the same place for 2,000 years has now had to completely change how they operate and if that's not evidence enough i i don't know but that's that's usually worked is talking about stories and people and personal experiences rather than arguing kind of an an issue that's become politicized that shouldn't be a political issue Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, that's why we find your work so important as well. Bringing those stories is is a different means of conveying a similar message. And in that, what you were mentioning before, could you share what is the most shocking or impactful manifestation of climate change that you have seen for yourself? So I spent a bit of time on Marikay Island in Kiribati. And that's one of the outer islands. There are 33 islands in Kiribati. And parts of the island are extremely narrow. And they have one road. It's kind of a dirt road that connects the villages around the island. And when I was there, they were rebuilding this road because the king tide had washed it away. And I was speaking with some of the workers and asking, has this happened before? Have you seen this happen before? It's happened four times. And it's been happening more frequently in the past 10 or so years. And they've they've had to drive the kids on a different back road to take them to school. And that's one of the the changes that they've seen. But then I, I walked further up the road and I spoke with a man who had recently lost his wife. And he was sitting alone in his house and explained to me that he, he knew things were changing and that eventually his home would be underwater, but that he wasn't going to leave because his wife was buried on his land. And even though three out of four of the thatched buildings that made up his house had been washed away, he was not going to leave his island. He was going to be buried with his wife and she was buried on their land. And he would kind of go down with his home when the sea came. And I just found that to be extremely powerful because his home was basically destroyed in one of the king tides that hit his island. And he was still going to stay there as long as as long as long he lived. And he, he did. I heard just this past fall that he, he had passed away. And they buried him kind of on the sandy beach where, where his home used to stand. 
and I talked to some of the other elders that were in that same village and there was the same story and people's homes are washed away but they were going to stay and be buried on their land because it's been their family land for thousands of years and that was just really some of the most powerful stories that I that I heard while I was there and I just there were stories kept coming as I as I traveled around Marrakei a lot of their very important ancestral shrines are also facing the destruction that's that's possible when the sea comes and washes things away and there's no elders alive that know how to move those shrines and so a lot of their cultural heritage sites are threatened and a lot of their their homes are threatened but people don't want to leave and they're adapting and, and staying as long as they can but they didn't contribute to any carbon emissions listening to these stories would you say that you're optimistic about the future of our planet and our communities and our future generations? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> a big question. <laughs> I've definitely struggled with reporting some of these stories because it's very easy to get frustrated and feel powerless when a lot of these changes are, are locked in and it feels like there's nothing we can do about what's happening, especially when a lot of choices are made for us and not based on on what most of the country believes in or it's just one person deciding to pull us from the Paris, <laughs> the Paris Agreement or, right. or things like that. It's easy to feel frustrated and powerless when seeing the implications of decisions that are made at the top level, seeing how they affect indigenous communities in Canada, seeing how they affect mm-hmm. people on these remote islands. And I think even with that, I'm still generally optimistic because I have seen people dealing with some of the most extreme challenges and even though they're the ones who really should be angry a lot of times even if they may hold some of that anger they're doing something about what they're seeing around them they're actively setting an example for other people and they're integrating renewables into their lives and integrating sustainability into their lives in a way that gives me hope because even if you're losing your your home to a rising tide, people are still working to make things better in their community. And I think that will eventually happen here. When we start seeing really drastic changes, I think people might start doing things at a grassroots level. People are already already starting to work on things, but I think once it's really affecting us, that's when things will start changing. I think we might just have to wait a few years for, for things to start hitting the U.S. before changes start happening here. I think that's a topic that we talk about a lot with our work and looking at environmental issues and climate change. It's easy to get frustrated or focus on the change that isn't happening. So it's just it's a great perspective to have to look at what is happening and and focus on that and trying to create more change and really amplify what people are already doing. Thank you for your work and for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Best of luck. Yeah, thanks for talking with us. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. 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 
think what's great about Janice and the work she and many others are doing in bringing stories like the one of Kiribati's people to a broader audience is that it humanizes the issues of climate change in ways that are much easier to understand. And that's something that we struggle with a lot in doing climate-related work. Since we've known for a while that scientific lingo and large statistics, as shocking as they may be, don't really resonate with people in the same way a single story does. And this plays a big role in the ways we think about communicating climate change uh, going forward. Right. And another main takeaway for me is the fact that many of us believe climate change is such a massive and systemic problem, and there's not much that we can do as individuals to address it, but that's simply not the case. And as we chatted with Janice about, it will most likely be up to local communities at the end of the day to find ways to adapt and innovate to a new climate reality and to the impacts of global climate change at the local level. This is already happening in places that are unfortunately already living with rising tides or heat waves, erosion, extreme weather, because they have to find ways to safeguard their livelihoods. In places like the U.S. or other countries of the global north, this has or not been quite at the same scale because the impacts have just not been as evident. I think we'll see this changing, though, and Janice made a really valid point in saying that grassroots innovations will most likely take the lead over top-down policy changes just because those are too slow to address a fast-approaching problem like global temperature change. And in the same way, entrepreneurship and innovation have undoubtedly a massive role to play in climate adaptation and moving us and the whole planet towards a low-carbon economy that can actually protect our future. Going beyond the despair we might feel when we're thinking about climate change and the future that might await us, it's important to remember the positive stories of people that beat the odds and are still striving to find a livable future for humankind on the planet. Exactly. And Janice's work is a testament to exactly this. The fact that people across the world are finding ways to grow food despite the fact that their soil is being eroded by salt water, then there really is no excuse for others sitting here in the United States, for example, to not take action. There are places, mostly small jurisdictions, that are setting an example for what we should be striving for, setting commitments for 100% renewable energy and integrating sustainability into their economy and way of life. Examples of these are Hawaii, Iceland, Burlington, Vermont, Aspen, Colorado. And it really does give us hope of what the future may hold, even if it will take stronger impacts to be felt to actually take meaningful steps to fight climate change. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform and follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode and thanks for listening. Stay cool.